0: started this morning. I I think I have a a bone to pick with you good people. Last week Bob Thomas was here preaching and it was all amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. You flirt with anybody that comes through but you won't amen me when I preach. What's up with that? How about you dance with the one that brought you? Well yeah but tell you what if I don't get any amens today I'm going to preach until I run out of words to say. probably not going to get an amen on that for sure. You know, we all have a, a common problem. It doesn't matter who we are, where we are in our relationship with Jesus. We have a problem that, that is not unique to any of us. It is universal. And that problem is temptation. Every one of us knows what it is to be tempted by sin. And I would say it is likely that every one of us is tempted by something specific. We're probably not all tempted by the same things. I mean, I could tell you two or three things that, that really, they appeal to my flesh. They appeal to my sinful nature. If I'm going to blow it, it is more than likely going to be in one of these two or three different ways. Chances are, that's the same way it is with you. If I were to ask you to think of it, you know what it is. It is something that you struggle with more than anything else. Probably it is kind of a, I think it's a double-edged sword with us. On the one hand, we struggle with it because there's a part of us that likes it. We like whatever this sin is, but at the same time we hate it. We hate that it has that appeal to us. We hate that we give in to it. We hate ourselves when we do fall into this particular temptation and sin. Now, the sin will probably vary from person to person. It could be lust. It could be gossip. It could be anger. It could be any number of things unique to each and every one of us in here. But we all have that that something that pulls us away from the Lord and into sin. What makes this even more difficult is the fact that we have an enemy that is called the tempter. Who is so bold that at one point he even tried to tempt Jesus himself into sin. And if he will try to tempt Jesus into sin, oh, make no mistake, he will certainly do what he can to tempt us into sin. And our enemy, the tempter, has been doing this for a very long time. He has been tempting human beings since our first father and mother in the Garden of Eden. And he has perfected his craft. He knows how to manipulate our emotions and our desires to cause us to to do the most damage, to fail the most often. And probably, in your case as it is in mine, the way he tempts us, it runs in in a particular order. First, he brings the temptation to bear stirs our sinful nature to want it. And as we're wrestling with it, there are thoughts that say, this isn't that big of a deal. Don't, don't think about anything but the pleasure. Think about how good this is going to feel, how much you're going to enjoy doing this particular thing. But he does all that he can to keep us not thinking on the consequences or beyond anything beyond that immediate pleasure. He tries to convince us that, that it's really a small thing. I mean, compared to what Joe Bob does, how big is this really? It's not that big of a thing. And then if he keeps it up and if we keep listening, we, we believe the deception and we take part in the sin. And then when we give in to the temptation, he flips the script. He goes from saying it's not that big of a deal to saying, who do you think you are? You call yourself a Christian. Holy cow, do you really think God loves you when you do stuff like that? Who are you to try to ask anybody else to come to Jesus? How can you say you love the Lord when you do things like this over and over again? He'll bring to bear all the times that we have failed. He does all that he can to, to pour on condemnation. Because he knows. That if we feel condemned and if we focus on our sin, we'll never turn to the Lord. Right? Because in those times where we are letting that condemnation weigh on us, we begin to wonder, who, who am I to go to Jesus and ask for forgiveness? I mean, am I even really sorry? I've done this so many times. Could I, can I legitimately say I'm sorry for this, Lord? Because probably I'm just going to do it again later. And he knows if he can get us to believe we are condemned, he can keep us from the grace and the mercy and the goodness of Jesus. And for many of us, this is a, just a cycle that we go through. But I wonder, what if there was a way to short out this cycle? What if there was a way not to give in to the temptation? What if it was possible for you and I to resist the temptation when it comes in, to choose to do what's right? What kind of a difference would that make in your life and mine? Today I want to look at a passage that shows us how to tame the temptations that come into our lives so that we can live victoriously. Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's page 875 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 10 and 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they ate of the same spiritual food and drank of the same spiritual rock. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples. To the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And that we not become idolatrous as some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink, and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all of these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The title of the message is Taming Temptation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. We praise you for your love and your mercy. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. Father, we we live in a world today that appeals to our sinful nature, I guess, constantly. There's always something out there seeking to draw us away from you. Gosh, to be honest, God, there's a part of all of us that are also seeking to draw us away from you. And Lord, as believers in Jesus Christ, we want to have victory. We want to be obedient to you and not to let these things control us. Today as we look at your word, help us to learn how to tame the temptations that we face. Help us to believe your word, to believe it's true, to believe it's real, to believe that what it says is really the way the world works. Help us to take it and apply it to our lives, begin to put it into practice. Let us experience the ability to overcome. Let us experience your Holy Spirit giving us the ability to put to death the deeds of the flesh with its passions and desires. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech that I could speak your words and your ways for your glory. We ask for your Holy Spirit to come and open our hearts to receive your word. Let it be implanted deep within our hearts. Let it bring forth good fruit in all of our lives. And as we go out this week and live, let us live victoriously. Let us live confidently. Let us live in ways that bring glory and honor to your name and for your sake. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. 1 Corinthians 10 is building on what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 9, how he ended. At the end of chapter 9, Paul said that he disciplined his body, did all that he could to bring it into subjection so that he himself would not be disqualified. Paul knew what temptations were. Paul faced temptations just like the rest of us. And Paul knew how to overcome his temptations. In a lot of ways, that's what 1 Corinthians 10, these 13 verses that we're looking at today, that's what it's about. It is about how to tame the temptations that we we do face in our lives so that we are not disqualified. And as I was studying this passage, part of what I noticed was how much Paul referenced the Scripture. Paul referenced the Old Testament. In verses 1 through 5, Paul talks about uh, things that happened during the exodus. And, and what's the reason he told us about that? Verse 6, they were examples for us. Then in verses 7 through 10, he talked about consequences for the sins that they did during the exodus. And then he, in verse 11, he tells us the purpose of these things. That they are examples for us. And therefore, because we see these examples, because other people have failed, we should not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. But we should take heed lest we fall and what I noticed in this is that Paul is, he is using the scripture to say it is possible to overcome temptation. Scripture will teach us, scripture will equip us to overcome the temptations that come into our life. And so the, the main thought, the central truth for today is that scripture equips me to tame my temptations. But right, if you think about what we're told in the Bible about the Bible. It is profitable for doctrine, rebuke, correction, instruction, and in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, perfect to every good work. Right? The Bible equips us to do all the things that God wants us to do. And make no mistake, one of the things that God wants us to do is to live a pure life. God wants us to tame the temptations. That's why we're told things like crucify the flesh, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. These are what God wants us to do. So his word, it will equip us to do this. Now, what do we do to allow the Holy Scripture to equip us to tame our temptation? Well, first, we have to learn from the examples in Scripture. Learn from the examples in Scripture. In verse one through four, Paul references the Exodus. Don't be unaware that our fathers were under the cloud. They passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses. They ate the same spiritual food. They drank the same spiritual water. And really what he's saying is they all experienced the blessings of God. Right? And to me, a lot of what he's saying here is he's saying they experienced God's deliverance, right? right? Because God sent Moses who went to Egypt and he, through Moses, God worked to deliver the Israelites out of slavery and he took them out of that land. And as God led them out of Egypt and into the promised land, He provided for them. He gave them food. He gave them water. He gave them protection. They all experienced this deliverance. They all experienced this protection. They all experienced the goodness, the grace, the mercy of Almighty God in their lives. But notice what happened to most of them. Verse 5. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For so their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, if you take that and compare it to what Paul says in verse 27 about being disqualified, that seems to be an Old Testament version of what Paul was talking about in verse 27. They experienced the goodness of God. They experienced the deliverance of God. But because of actions they took, sin they committed, they ended up being disqualified. God was not well pleased with them, and so they died In the wilderness. Now, why are we told about that? They are examples for us. To the intent that we should not lust after the things that they also lusted, That we would not make the same mistakes that they made. One of the things I love about Scripture is the honesty that we have in Scripture. When Scripture teaches us about its heroes, they are flawed, fallen people who make mistakes. Other than Jesus, you'll not find one person in Scripture who lived a perfect life. And, And it's telling us about these so that we can learn from them. You know, when we read the Old Testament, we can learn a lot about how to live for Jesus today. For instance, if in the Old Testament they did something and God blessed it, then that's a pretty good indication that that's a good thing that God wants us to do. At the same time, if they did something and God cursed it or God punished it, then probably that's something we should ignore. We should avoid at all costs. And if we want to tame the temptation and live in victory over the things that pull at us, we need to learn from those that have gone before us so that we don't make their mistakes. Now, what kind of mistakes did they make? What kind of... How can we learn? There's a lot, but I picked three that came specifically from the Exodus account because that's what Moses was referencing. First is that God will never be okay with idolatry. That's an important lesson for us to learn. Exodus 32, Moses has been up on the mountain for a very long time. The people, concerned I guess that he's died, they go to Aaron and say, Moses, I guess, is dead? Why don't you build us a God for us to worship? Aaron says, that sounds like a good idea. Why don't you give me all your gold earrings and all your gold stuff and and we'll see what happens. Aaron then fashions a calf. He makes it out of this gold and he presents it to Israel and he says, Behold, O Israel, your gods which brought you up out of Egypt. The story goes where God gets angry and he comes down and and, and there's a, a judgment of God upon the people. For their worshipping of idolatry. Now what I like about that passage, and the reason I referenced it, is because it would be easy for us to say, well, I'm not building a golden calf and bowing down, so that doesn't apply to me. But when you really study the passage, when Aaron built the idol and presented it to the people, he didn't say, let's worship the cow god. What he said was, this is the God that brought us out of the land of Egypt. He made a cow and he said, this is Yahweh, this is Jehovah, this is is our God, let's worship that. He wasn't introducing them to a whole new God. He was making a God that they would like, a God that would make them comfortable, a God that they could bow down and worship and accept. And that is something that we can do in our day as well. In our day, the way we make an idol like that is we, we reject the biblical revelation of who God is and what God is like. See, by the time we get to Exodus 32, God has already said, don't make any graven images to, make, to represent me. Why? Because God is great and glorious and, and there is no representation that man can make that would, that would do him justice. Anything we could build and say, this is God, would make God less than He was. It would be less than glorious. It would be less than majestic. And so often in our culture, what we do is, we see parts of God that we don't like. That we get ashamed of. We see a God who says, repent, believe, or, or you'll go to hell. We see a God who says, if your name is not found in the book of life, you'll be cast in the lake of fire. A God who says there is an absolute standard of morality. And these things are always wrong and they'll never be okay. And to our culture, those things are not okay. It is not okay to believe in a God who has wrath. It is not okay to believe in a God who will judge sin. It's not okay who will, To believe in a God who will say, I don't care if that does bring you pleasure. It is sin, it is wrong, and it will always keep you from me. So what do we do? We modify it. We Well, that was then. Culture in that day, they didn't understand how people in this particular lifestyle operate. and They didn't understand what it was to truly love each other and to act, like, act in this way. When Jesus talked about being the way, the truth, and the life, and no one come to the Father through Him, He really didn't understand that there were all that there is all these other religions that would help people be good, moral people. And any time we do that, it's idolatry. We make God less than He is when we reject the biblical revelation of Him. God has told us who He is. God has told us what He's like, and we we have two choices. We can accept God as He is or we can reject Him outright. Those are the only choices we have. And make no mistake, when we alter the God of the Bible to fit our needs or our desires or to make us more comfortable, we have done nothing but reject God outright. God will never, never be okay with idolatry of any sort. That's a lesson to learn. A second lesson is that ignoring God's Word is deadly. Leviticus 10 tells us an interesting story about the sons of Aaron. And one day they go in to light the fire to burn incense to the Lord. But the Bible says they bake they a strange fire. They take an incense that wasn't the one God had commanded. And they burned that before the Lord. Does anybody remember what God did when they burned the strange fire? He killed them. He killed them dead. And he told Aaron and Moses they were not to mourn. Why did God kill them? He killed them, he said, because they didn't reverence his word as they should. You see, they didn't make a mistake. It wasn't like there were 14 types of incense and they said, gosh, I'm not sure which one we're supposed to take. I guess I'll take this one. And God was like, wrong answer, you're dead. God had commanded there is a particular kind of incense that you are to burn for me. This and nothing else. So it wasn't that they made an innocent mistake. They knew exactly what God had said. And they said. I think this would work better. It's a new age. It's a new. The world is different than it was when God initially said that. This new incense. This. This is the stuff. They rejected. They ignored God's word. And they did their own thing. God killed them. Because of it. God's word. Is precious. There's a. A passage in the Psalms where God says he elevates his word above his own name. I mean, that's a big deal. Listen, so there, there, there is no way to ignore God's word and live for God at the same time. There is no way to say, I don't like this holiness thing, but I still love Jesus. It doesn't work that way. There's no way to say, well, I, I don't like the church part of the Bible, but I still love Jesus doesn't work that way. We don't get to ignore God's word. We don't get to try to improve upon it. We don't get to try to say my way is better or this is a new day. We don't get to do any of that. Well, I guess we can. But there are consequences for it. One can never ignore God's word and follow Jesus at the same time. It is deadly to choose to ignore God's word. A third one. Is that doubt-filled disobedience causes me to miss God's best. Numbers 13 and 14. The Israelites come to the edge of the promised land. And Moses sends out spies to go and to check the land. And they go and they map it out and they see the fruit. And they look at the land and they come back and they say, It's just as great as God said it was. The People are excited, but then they say, but the people of the land, they're mightier than we are. If we cross the Jordan and go into the land, we're going to die. And our children are going to die. And Joshua, Caleb, they said, no, no. If God is for us, no one can be against us. Don't, don't listen to this evil report. Let's, let's just believe God and let's go. But all the rest of the people, they believed the bad report. And they said, no, I don't think we can go. There's no way we'll win. God, God can't do what he has said he will do. And so God told them, all right, the promised land is not yours. You'll wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. And all of this generation that would have been warriors that conquered the promised land. You're going to die in the wilderness. And your children will conquer the promised land. The promised land was theirs. God had promised it to them. All they had to do was just do what God said. Believe God's word enough to act on it. And God would have given them victory after victory. Look at the book of Joshua And they won amazing battles. God stopped the sun, rained down hell upon the people. God did amazing things to give His people victory. And that's what He would have done for this generation. But their doubt-filled disobedience caused them to miss out on what God wanted to do in them, through them, and for them. You know, the Christian life is a walk of faith. We walk by faith and not by sight, 2 Corinthians says. And that means at times we're going to be afraid. And that means at times it won't make sense. And that means at times it's going to be beyond our abilities. We're going to think, there's no way I can. And we'll have a critical decision to make at that point. To believe God and obey God, or to let our doubts cause us to disobey. And every single time we let our doubts cause us to disobey God, we miss out on God's best. We miss out on what God wanted to do in us, through us, and for us. We miss out on all that God could have done in us, through us, and for us. Think about the many times in the Gospel accounts where Jesus went into a town and did not do many mighty miracles because the people didn't believe. They missed the Son of God healing and casting out demons and doing amazing things because they wouldn't believe. You and I, we can miss out on the mighty acts of God in our life, too. And every time we let doubt keep us from obeying, we miss out on God's best for our lives. These are just a few of the lessons Scripture teaches us. And when we learn these lessons and we apply these principles, it helps us to tame temptation because... We're going to be tempted with some form of idolatry, probably. Someone we love is going to entertain a lifestyle we don't approve of. And we're going to be tempted to change God till he accepts that. There's going to be parts of God's word that that are hard that we don't want to do. And we're going to be tempted to ignore that. There is going to be doubts. And we're going to be tempted to disobey because of those doubts. We will all experience these things and more. And what we learn from Scripture can help us to tame these temptations and to choose to do what God would have us to do. Scripture will absolutely equip us to tame our temptation, but we have to learn from the stories of Scripture, from the examples of Scripture. Secondly, we need to be realistic about the consequences of sin the people in Israel, they did all kinds of things that God told them not to do. Some were idolaters. Some committed sexual immorality. Some tempted Christ. And some complained. And in each of these situations, there were consequences that occurred because of their sin. Those that committed sexual immorality, 23,000 fell in one day. That's a load of people dying. The hand of Almighty God for sin that is common in our day. Some of them tempted Christ. And for those that did, they were destroyed by serpents. You know the story of the fiery serpents that bit them and they died. Now, verse 10 is pretty hard. They complained. And they were destroyed by the destroyer. If I was a meddling preacher, I'm not. But if I was... I would I would really point out the fact that God killed people for complaining in the Old Testament. Killed them dead. A lot of them. And the Philippians chapter 2 tells us to do all things without murmuring or complaining. And and yet we we complain often. When obviously God is not pleased with it and we act like that's okay. But I'm not a meddling preacher so I won't say any of that stuff. But I want you to notice that with their sin, there were consequences. They died. Why why would Paul tell us that? Because in verse 11, now these things happened to them as examples. They were written for our admonition, upon who the ends of the ages have come. They were written so that we would learn from their examples. That we would see God really does judge sin. That the God who said the wages of sin is death was absolutely serious. That the God who rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin will surely judge us for our sin. See, our actions, they have consequences. This is a law. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For what a man sows, that will he also reap. He who sows to his flesh will love the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows the Spirit will love the Spirit reap everlasting life. You and I are going to reap a harvest for the lives we've lived. There is no question. The only question is which kind of harvest will we reap? Destruction or everlasting life? And if we want to reap everlasting life, there is a particular way we have to sow, particular actions we have to do. So often what we want to do is we want to sow to the flesh and reap everlasting life. And God says that's not the way it works. We don't go to Walmart and buy tomato plants, plant them and then get upset when onions don't sprout, do we? I mean, if we went back to Walmart and said, I planted these tomatoes and they came up tomatoes and not onions. I want my money back. They would call the mental health services on us. And yet often that's what we do in the spirit. We live sinfully rebellious lives. And then when consequences happen, why is this happening to me? Well, because you did this and this and this over time. Every action has a reaction. If we want to reap the blessings of the Spirit, then we had better sow to the Spirit. And if we don't want to reap corruption and destruction, we better not sow to the flesh. Because when we do, there's a crop coming. And there's a harvest we'll face. And I was thinking about this. Here's a reason I think this is so important. I love this verse. People ruin their lives by their own foolishness. And then they're angry at the Lord. This is such a powerful thought. As a pastor and as a youth pastor, I have seen this more times than I can count. See, here's what happens. People sow to the flesh and they begin to reap the consequences. And then they come to the Lord and they want God to make a harvest, a crop failure. And when he doesn't, they blame him. But... Husband treat his wife terrible for years and years. He will cheat on her. He will cuss her out. He will be horrible to her. And then there comes a time where she just flat won't take it any longer, and she leaves. And very often the husband will come to church, and he'll listen to a sermon and. He'll come to the altar and he'll weep and he'll pray. And he'll ask God to forgive him and to to save his marriage. But many times by this point, it's too, it's too, too late. It's too far gone. The wife's not having it. What does the husband say? I made a mess. Not usually. Usually they get mad at God. God let my marriage fall apart. Or... Or a wife who overspends time after time after time gets themselves in in a huge bind where they're about to lose the house and the car and, and have everything taken away. She'll come to church and she'll come to the altar and she'll pray. But it's too late. There's no fixing. There's no undoing what's been done at this point. So they lose the house. They lose the car and they lose their stuff. And what does she say? God let us lose our stuff. parents are overly indulgent to their children and never hold them accountable for their actions. And they let them do whatever they want. and, and, And no matter where they are, they can make a big enough stink that there are no consequences for their actions. And the kids grow up and they act like that as adults and they get into big trouble. The parents come to the altar and they pray, God save my child. Pull them out of this. Get them out of these consequences. But it's not happening this time. And what do they say? God let bad things happen to my child. In every situation, people are reaping consequences for actions that they've taken. And then, through their own foolishness, they've destroyed their lives, and now they're angry at God. Actions have consequences. You and I are not going to be the exception to that. We will all reap a harvest. It's just a matter of what will we reap. We reap what we sow. That is a a law from God that is without exception. When our temptations come, we need to be honest with ourselves about the consequences of these actions. There is a harvest coming. Be realistic about the consequences you'll face for the actions you take. Thirdly, stay humble. Right, scripture will equip us to tame our temptation, but we have to be realistic about the consequences. Thirdly, we have to stay humble. I like what Paul says in verse 12. Therefore, four. no. Therefore. But him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You know what he's saying? The Corinthians, he said, you're looking at all the things the Israelites did. They worshipped idols. They gave into sexual immorality. They, they complained. They tempted Christ. And you're saying, there's no way I would do that. I would never make that mistake. How much do we do something like that? Right? I mean, let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen someone blow it bigly, bigly, publicly, hugely, terribly, some sort of lethal way, right? I mean, public consequences, public humiliation, public loss. Have you ever seen that and said, I would never make that mistake. Now, I know, I know lots of pastors who have blown it. And out of the ones I've known personally who blew it, do you know what I've heard them say to other people who blew it before? I would never have cheated on my wife. I would never have looked at pornography at the church. I would never have done what you did. And they did. But it's not just pastors or public folks that are are on TV. We know regular people that have blown it. And if we're not careful, in our self-righteousness and in our pride, we will say, I would never make that mistake. I I know how to rein it in before the consequences come. I will never get caught. I know how to hide it so that no one ever finds out. That will never happen to me. That is a danger for us to believe. I, I know for me... As a young, self-righteous preacher, I have said that more than I can acknowledge. The older I've gotten, the more I've understood what one of my pastors used to tell us all the time. He said, given the right set of circumstances, anyone is capable of any sin. I think, crazy talk. Now that I'm older, more aware of my depravity and the strength of my sinful nature, I know the wisdom of that. We have to stay humble about the fact. We haven't given in. We haven't sowed to our flesh. That is wonderful. But don't think you're immune. How many of you have heard the saying that sin takes you further than you wanted to go, keeps you longer than you wanted to stay, and costs you more than you wanted to pay? If you ever heard some variation? that, Raise your hand. It's okay. We're Baptists, but we can raise our hands in church. I promise. (laughs) That statement is true. It may be somewhat cliche, but it's an accurate statement. To me, the best example of that is King Saul from the Old Testament. Now, King Saul, let me just kind of tell you his story. Saul was the son. He was a Benjamite, son of Kish. And he was just a kid, or just a shepherd, just working for his dad. And one day, the people of Israel, they said to God, we want a king so that we can be just like everyone else. And so God chose a man. He chose Saul, the son of Kish. And when God chose Saul, Saul hid because he didn't want to be king. He didn't feel that he could do it. But God chose him, and so he he stepped up to the throne. throne. And when God chose Saul, he was compassionate. He was spirit-filled. He loved the Lord. He was devoted to God's will. As time went on, Saul became proud. And Saul began to do things that he should not have done. First, it was a small thing. They were going to war and Samuel was supposed to come and offer a sacrifice so that God would bless the army as they went to war. But Samuel was late. The, the soldiers were scared. So Saul said, I'll offer the sacrifice to God. Sacrifice was the priest's job. It was not the king's job. He, he overstepped his bounds shouldn't be. Maybe you think, well, that's not that big of a thing. And it really, in the small ways, it's not. But then later, God sends Saul out to kill the Amalekites, to wipe them out, to save no one alive and to kill all of their livestock. And so Saul goes and he kills everyone except for the king, Agag. And he destroys all of the livestock except for the really good stuff. And when Samuel asked him, why didn't you do what God said, Saul said, I did exactly what God said. Except the fact that I kept Agag alive and that I saved the the best of the flocks. But he had a good reason for it. You see, in in that day, one of the ways to show that your king was great and your kingdom was strong was to bring the, the defeated king in chains into your city. He was just going to show that the God of of Saul, the God of Israel, was greater than the God of the Amalekites by bringing that king in and then executing him. And he was going to sacrifice. He wasn't going to keep any of the flocks for himself. He was going to sacrifice them to God as an offering to Almighty God. He obeyed up to the point that it made good sense to him. But God called that disobedience that was like witchcraft and idolatry. And he said that Saul would not have an enduring kingdom, that he would take the throne from him and give that throne to a man after his own heart. The person that God chose to take Saul's place was young David. And eventually Saul figured out who it was. And Saul hated him. And Saul tried to murder him. And when he couldn't murder him in his room, he hunted him down all over the kingdom. And his hatred for David was such that at one point he got all of the priests of God and their families because they had helped David. And he had them all executed, men, women, and children. He had them all murdered. Later, Saul, in rebellion against God's commands, he went and sought a witch to speak to God for him. To try to get an answer about what was going on. Now, where Saul ended, and where Saul started, there was a great gulf fixed. They were nowhere near the same man. And I would imagine if you were to have said to Saul, when he was first made king, before you die, you will kill all the priests of God. You will try to murder an innocent man. You will inquire of a witch. And your, con- and your actions will be such that God will kill you and your sons. And no one will take the throne after you. Saul would have said, no way. There's no way I'll do all those things you're saying. Not me. But he did. Sin kept Saul longer than he intended to stay, for sure. Sin took him further than he ever thought he would go. And it cost him far more than he ever imagined it would cost him. So make no mistake no one ever sets out to destroy their lives. No one ever sets out to destroy their marriages. No one ever sets out to cause public humiliation to themselves and to their families. A little sin here, a little sin there. And it takes them way further than they ever imagined they would go. And what happened to the Israelites can happen to you. It can happen to me. What happened with Saul can happen to you. It can happen to me. There is a humbling realization that we have to have if we want to overcome our temptations. Because pride Pride precedes a fall all throughout Scripture. The moment we say, I would never do that, that would never happen to me. Make no mistake, you are in a dangerous, dangerous place. Scripture can equip us to tame our temptation, but we must stay humble. And then finally, we have to trust God's promises. Verse 13 is a wonderful verse. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. I love this verse, and I think I could say I, I maybe I hate this verse. If, that's, if you can say you hate a Bible verse and still go to heaven. And here's why I love it because what a great promise we find in this passage. We'll talk about it. there's three promises that this gives us, but at the same time, no temptation has taken me but such as common to man. God is faithful, will not allow me to be tempted of what I can bear, but will always, always make a way of escape. That means it's always my fault when I sin. I can't ever. As a believer, I can't ever blame anyone or anything else for any action I take. My outburst of wrath, it doesn't matter what people did to make me angry. My lust, it doesn't matter what anyone was wearing or what was on the TV. My gossip, it doesn't matter what I knew or what I found out. My judgmental attitude, it doesn't matter how I was raised. My every sin is... Is always my fault. Your every sin. It's always your fault. And for a blamed generation, that is tough. But this passage, it gives us three wonderful promises to help us. And we, we have to trust these. We have to believe that these are real and this is really the way God works. The first one, everyone is tempted just like I am. When someone is struggling under sin, and they're being defeated by sin. One well, of the first things they'll say is, "You just don't understand. You don't feel it the way I feel it." Listen, we are all tempted, the same—not not in the same ways, and not by the same sins—but we all have a sinful nature. We all have an enemy. We all suffer from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Right? And, and I want to look at this not just from the perspective that that I'm not unique. But here's what I want you to get more than anything. You're not alone. You're not alone. When we struggle with sin, we think we're the only one. Because when we come here, we don't talk about that, do we? None of us have a relationship with other believers where we're honest and open about our struggles and our failures, do we? I don't. I don't. And I'm betting you don't either. And so, what does that leave us? We come to church and we sit and we look at everybody and we think, Red's like nearly perfect. Stop, look at him singing. Anybody could sing that good? They must just be like so close to Jesus. And, and on and on, and everybody in here, they're just perfect. I'm the only one. If I were to tell people how I struggle and what I failed, they would hate me. They would tell me I'm not a Christian. I would be kicked out, judged. And sadly, in some places, that might be true. But understand, you're not alone. The devil wants you to think you're alone. He wants you to think you're the only one. Because he's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And if you grew up watching nature shows, what does the lion do to the antelope that he wants to kill? Separates it from the herd. When you think you're the only one, you'll get separated from the herd. Make no mistake, Satan will get you then. Everyone in this room is tempted like you are. Everyone struggles like you do. Everyone tries. Everyone falls. Everyone repents. Everyone moves forward. You are not alone in this struggle. Second truth is that God is for me during my temptations. Have you ever struggled under temptation and thought that God was angry with you because you still were tempted this way? Surely, surely I should be better than this. Surely I'm far enough along that I wouldn't be tempted by this. God must just look down and go, Stacy, you're such a a failure. And yet Paul says, but God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able God is for you during your temptation. Listen, as a believer in Jesus Christ, God is on your side. As a believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus is your advocate with the Father. As a believer in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God lives within you and is always trying to help you to overcome. God is for you during your temptation. He is not against you. He is not angry. He is not looking at you as a failure. He is actively involved in that time. Again, Satan wants you to think that God is angry. Satan wants you to think that God has given up. Satan wants you to think that God thinks you're a failure. None of that's true. In the midst of your temptation, even in the midst of failing your temptation... Gosh, I'll go so far as to say, even when you're reaping the consequences for your sin. God is for you in that time. Because of your repentance, your faith, and your relationship with Jesus Christ. And then the final truth. There is always a way out. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with every temptation will make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. There is always a way to say no. There is always a way out. You can always stop talking. You can always shut the computer down. You can always get up and walk away. You can always hold it in. You can always go to your closet and pray. You can always ask another believer to help you. You can always find a way out of temptation. Every single temptation you face no matter how strong or overwhelming it seems there is a God given way out but you have to look for it might have to pray for it you have to want it which in my life I'm going to be honest when I fail it's not because I don't see the way out but I want This immediate pleasure. I I want to do what this is. And so I don't take it. I need to look. I need to pray. And then when I see that way, I, I need to take it. There is always a way out. Satan, again, Satan wants you to think you're helpless. He wants you to think you're powerless to overcome your sinful nature. He wants you to think that you have no choice but to give in to the temptations that come into your life. But the honest truth is there is always a way out. God is greater than your temptations. The Spirit of God within you is greater than your flesh. There is always a way if we will look for it. Listen, believer, understand you are not helpless and powerless. In your battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Most of my life, I understood that as believers, we were poor, pitiful, and powerless in our struggle against temptation. We were just struggling to persevere, trying to overcome, hoping to make it through. And then I started reading the Bible for myself. And I find passages like, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature wants you to do. God is faithful with every temptation will make a way out. Those who are dead to sin how shall we live in it any longer? The spirit lusts against the flesh, and the spirit is trying to lead us away. I mean you think about all that the Bible says that is for us. God the Father is always at work for us. Jesus is our advocate is always for us. The spirit of God is within us always for us. The cross of Christ has Destroyed our, slave, our enslavement to the sinful nature. We are not losers trying to win. We are victors. We, we fight this battle from a position of strength. Not a position of weakness. We fight this battle with a position of victory. Not a position of loss. I mean, do, you, do you really believe that? Do you believe that you are not alone? Do you believe that that God is for you in your temptation? Do you believe that there is really always a way out? These are truths from God's word. We, we have to believe this. We have to believe that that is really possible. I mean, do you do you really believe when you leave here and you go out and you face a temptation that in the midst of that temptation, you can choose to resist it every time? can. God will always make a way out. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. God is at work for you in this battle. And our great need is to trust that that is true. Look for the way out. and Take it. You know, I, I don't know what temptation you're facing in your life. What you deal with on a regular basis. But I do want you to know. It is possible. To tame that temptation. It is possible to break that cycle. And live victoriously. And obediently. To almighty God. Scripture. Will teach you. It will equip you. But you have to believe it. You have to trust. The promises that it gives I want you to stand right